Hello, and welcome to You've Got to Read This, a podcast for those with a passion for reading. Each year, hundreds of thousands of books are published in the U.S. Millions are published worldwide. Join us as we navigate the world of books in hopes of introducing you to something new. I'm Michelle Dubois. And I'm Renee Seinfeld. And you're listening to You've Got to Read This. Welcome to episode three of You've Got to Read This. We want to recognize some of our new listeners. Our podcast data shows that we have listeners from across the country. And some in other continents. We have listeners from Brookline, Lemonster, Franklin, Weymouth, and Andover, Massachusetts. From Hillsborough and Concord, New Hampshire. Wells, Kennebunkport, and Brunswick, Maine. Columbus, Ohio. Manhattan and Albany, New York. Norton Shores, Michigan, San Antonio, Texas, Watsonville, Calabasas, Woodland Hills, Los Angeles, and Beverly Hills, California, Washington, Virginia, Victoria, Canada, Blackheath, England, and Manila, Philippines. For those of you listening, thank you for joining us. So several weeks ago, we were feeling a little cooped up and decided to go on a short road trip. We packed our masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, and off we went. We took a short drive to Connecticut, and as we always do when traveling, we looked for the local bookstores. R.J. Julia Booksellers in Madison and their university bookstore in Middletown, Connecticut were open for business. They had a lot of safety protocols, and they did a wonderful job making their customers feel safe. Yes, and if you're missing your local bookstores and live in New England, we recommend visiting R.J. Julia in Madison and Middletown, Connecticut. Needless to say, we left R.J. Julia with a stack of books. Some of them we'll discuss today. Our first book today is a new thriller entitled When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. It was published by William Morrow and Company and just came out in September of this year. Alyssa Cole is a Black American, New York Times, and USA Today best-selling author who spends her time between the Caribbean island of Martinique and New York City. The novel takes place in present-day Brooklyn. The main character is Sydney Green, a young Black woman who has recently returned home from Seattle to care for her ailing mother. Following her divorce, Sydney is struggling emotionally and financially to keep her mother's brownstone while the medical bills are piling up. Sydney begins to notice that her neighborhood is changing. What used to be a diverse neighborhood is becoming rapidly gentrified. Neighbors Sydney has known her whole life are moving out in quick succession without saying goodbye. A startling experience with an Uber driver, a questionable visit from a meter reader, and the arrest of her neighbor make Sydney wonder if she's becoming paranoid or if there's something nefarious going on in her neighborhood. When her best friend stops returning her calls, she takes up an unlikely friendship with Theo, her new white neighbor across the street. But can she truly trust his motives of friendship as this thriller comes to a head? I love this book. What did you think? I loved it too. It was a total page turner. I agree. It was like a smoldering slow build that really escalated at the end. And I love that whole who can you trust kind of thriller. Mm-hmm. Someone described this book as Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window meets Jordan Peele's Get Out. 
And I think that defines this book perfectly, don't you think? Oh yeah, totally. Um, I also really enjoyed how much Alyssa Cole packed into the book. It was a tight thriller. She addresses racism, gentrification, and history. Mm. So in addition to the thriller, the author gives us history about the Weeksville neighborhood in Brooklyn, where free black men prior to the Civil War could own property. She ties that history into the story in a very poignant and a very eye-opening manner. I googled the Weeksville neighborhood while reading the book and found that the Weeksville Heritage Museum in Brooklyn has preserved some of those original houses on site. And uh, I just loved how much history she incorporated into the story. I agree. And she also incorporated some comic relief in the book, particularly between Sydney and Theo. Yeah, there are several laugh out loud moments in the book, which is such a nice relief from tension sometimes when you're reading a thriller. Um, It's interesting that Alyssa Cole has written a lot of books, but they're mostly romance novels like sci-fi romance, historical era romance, and this book seems to be a breakout for her in the thriller genre, and it was really good. I, I, um, I hope they make it a movie. Yeah, it would make a great movie, but back to your point about Alyssa Cole being a romance novelist. She has a pretty spicy (laughs) scene in this book, so I'd say she definitely included some of that romance in this novel here. Yeah. The book again is When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. Now let's shift to a novel about friendship. Rules for Visiting by Jessica Francis Kane caught my attention while scanning the stacks at RJ Julia because the blurb on the cover says, fun, hilarious, and extremely touching. Check, check, and check. This description met all of my nutritional needs. Into the basket it went. Raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and a graduate of Yale University, Jessica Frances Kane is a white female author of several short stories and two novels. Rules for Visiting is her second novel and was published in May 2019 by Penguin Press and became a national bestseller. In Rules for Visiting, the protagonist of the story, May Attaway, is a botanist and a gardener for an American university. She is single, in her 40s, college-educated, and living at home with her widowed father, a retired professor. After reading messages of condolence on a stranger's obituary, May wonders what her friends would say about her if she died. She begins to worry that she's not very good at friendship, so she decides to visit four long-forgotten friends with the idea that through practice, she can learn how to be a better friend. What she discovers along the way is that friendship is like gardening. Both require effort and attention. So tell me what makes this book funny as May goes to visit all of these friends. Well, it's so relatable. You know, visiting friends and staying overnight comes with a special set of rules and etiquette, whether you are the host or the guest. Wanting to be a good guest, May packs a copy of Emily Post's book, Etiquette. Hmm. The first sign that May is not used to social engagements, and she is afraid that she doesn't know the, quote, rules for visiting. Comedy ensues when she's visiting different households. Some of her friends are married, some of them are single, some of them have children while others don't, and each household is very different from the other. In one household, your friend has everything in order. They're the perfect host, the house is spotless, they cook like a a gourmet chef, the kids are well-mannered, and the bedsheets smell like lavender. While on the other hand, Your other friend's life is a little chaotic, and they don't mind sharing that with you. Um, It's a little more realistic, but their house is a mess. There's no three-course meal. It's all takeout. (laughs) 
Um, and oh, by the way, you're sleeping either on a futon or your seven, her seven year old twin bed. Um, I think that's where some of the humor in the book comes from. In addition, I love May's internal dialogue. Mm. She's going from one friend's house to another. Uh, she can be very opinionated at points, but I adore her internal thought process. Hmm. As humorous as these situations are, Rules for Visiting is a novel with heart. May's time visiting with friends forces her to inspect her own life and to reckon with past events that have made her recluse and a passive participant in her friendships. What I like about this book is that it equally is sensitive as it is snarky. The reviews of this book use adjectives like humorous and witty, but there's a critical undertone of the humor, which I love and appreciate, so I'm labeling it as snarky. Another aspect of the book that I really enjoy is Kane's artful way of comparing nature with human relationships. Just as a garden needs weeding to grow, or knowing what kind of a tree can thrive in certain climates, so too is the delicacy of human relationships. Both need attention and understanding in order to survive. The book again is Rules for Visiting by Jessica Francis Kane. Her last name is spelled K-A-N-E. My next book is The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donahue. It was published by Little Brown in July of 2020. Emma Donahue is a white Irish-Canadian author. Born in Dublin, Ireland, she earned a first-class honors BA in English and French from University College Dublin and earned her PhD from the University of Cambridge. She now lives in Canada. She's a playwright, screenwriter, and the author of 20 books. Another of her novels, entitled Room, was turned into a movie in 2015 and nominated for four Academy Awards. The Pull of the Stars is a work of historical fiction that takes place at a hospital in Dublin, Ireland in 1918. To paint the backdrop of the story, it's October 1918 and the height of World War I. Blimps fly over the Dublin port, keeping a lookout for German submarines. It's a time when Ireland is still under British rule, and that tension is thick and constant. Several months prior to this, the British government passed a law imposing the draft on the men of Ireland, forcing them into the military. Irish people rebelled so fiercely against this that England was never able to enforce that draft. On top of all of this conflict, the entire world is in the midst of the largest flu pandemic in history. The Spanish flu is highly contagious and symptoms come on violently. The flu is so deadly that those who do die often do so within 12 to 18 hours of their symptoms beginning. The novel follows the main character, Julia Power, a 29-year-old white maternity nurse. Typically stationed on a large maternity ward, she's just been assigned to run, by herself, a small unit of female patients close to labor who also have come down with the Spanish flu. The entire novel takes place over the course of two days during Julia's 14-hour shifts. Women are giving birth while others are dying, all in the presence of each other in this open, makeshift maternity ward. They experience birth and death together, in the midst of electrical brownouts and a shortage of doctors, and the main character, Julia, has no choice but to endure and move on to the next patient. This novel is propulsive, adrenaline-filled, and historically informative. It's a book everyone in the world can relate to right now, given the coronavirus, especially people working in healthcare. 
This book sounds so riveting. It's almost as if she's combined the movies Outbreak with Pearl Harbor. That, yeah, that's a perfect description. It was so good, I couldn't put it down, and I finished it in two days. The other neat part is in the author's note at the end, she reveals that one of the characters was actually a real person, and she points you in the direction of some of some other books about that person's life. That's what I love about historical fiction. You get entertainment and education all in one. I totally agree. For our listeners, the book again is The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donahue. Her last name is spelled D-O-N-O-G-H-U-E. Reading A Pull of the Stars reminds me that we've been here before. Well documented from the 1300s on, every century experiences epidemics and or pandemics. Cholera, typhus, smallpox, influenza, polio, the bubonic plague. It's a cyclical medical reality throughout history. When we live through historic events like this, I turn to history and I find comfort turning to literature to see how other people endured. William Shakespeare, for example, lived through several bubonic plague outbreaks during the 15 and 1600s. His Globe Theatre in London was shut down for months during those times. All of England and Europe was shut down. Ports were closed and ships were forced to quarantine for weeks before sailors could disembark. Schools and businesses were closed. Whole towns and villages quarantined. People throughout history endured, and so will we. If listeners are curious about other novels that deal with epidemics and pandemics, we recommend the following books. French author Albert Camus' classic novel, The Plague, published in 1947. The novel takes place in an Algerian town that's been quarantined to prevent the spread of a plague that's moving through the country. We also recommend Irish-British author Maggie O'Farrell's book Hamnet, published in 2020. It's a novel about William Shakespeare's son Hamnet, who died when he was a child. Though it's unknown how Hamnet died, the author took the liberty of connecting his death in the story to the bubonic plague that passed through England at the same time as his son's death. And also, American author Philip Roth's novel, Nemesis, published in 2010, takes place in Newark, New Jersey in 1944 during an escalating polio outbreak. And finally, we recommend English author Daniel Defoe's novel, A Journal of the Plague Year, published in 1722. The novel chronicles life in London during the bubonic plague outbreak of 1665. Daniel Defoe was five years old during that pandemic. And for nonfiction, we recommend the following books. The Coming Plague by Laurie Garrett. The Great Influenza by John Barry, And Polio, an American Story by David Oshinsky. Let's take care of each other during this global crisis. Be safe, patient, and kind, and keep reading. So let's focus on uh, nonfiction. What have you been reading? So my nonfiction is called Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. It investigates the struggles of working class Americans, concluding, as the title suggests, that life has become a balancing act without a net. Mm -hmm. It was written by husband and wife team Nicholas D. Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. The pair has co-authored four previous books, three of them bestsellers. I'm sure you're familiar with some of them. China Wakes, which was published in 1994, Thunder from the East, published in 2000, Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, was published in 2009. They are the first married couple to have shared a Pulitzer Prize in journalism for their coverage of China in 1990. 
Tightrope was published in 2020 by Knopf. Christoph is a white American columnist for the New York Times, a recipient of two Pulitzers and previously served as chief bureau correspondent in Asia. He has reported from six different continents and has lived in four of them. Wu Dun is a Pulitzer Prize winning Asian American reporter and business consultant. She worked for the Times as a business editor and foreign correspondent in Asia and now works in finance. Their latest book, Tightrope is an intimate look at a rural white American community grappling with poverty and depression in Yamhill, Oregon. It is especially personal to co-author Nick Kristoff because this is the community where he grew up. Here he is, an award-winning journalist with a fulfilling life and successful marriage, while most of his childhood friends are struggling with long-term unemployment, medical ailments, depression, failed relationships, imprisonment, and early death from drug abuse, alcoholism, and suicide. Why and how, Christoph and Wudan want to know, did Christoph escape a similar fate and what can be done to help communities like Yamhill across the U.S. to get out of this crisis? Through personal interviews of childhood friends and neighbors, Christoph and Wudan piece together a narrative that is common across rural America, that good-paying jobs are scarce, and when adversity strikes, there are few resources to help them get through the hard times and to get them back on track. Running parallel to the personal stories, Tightrope incorporates important historical and statistical data about labor, education, public policy, healthcare, and prescription drugs to explain what is and has been happening across America since the mid to late 20th century. Although much of the book paints a grim picture of a despondent working class America in crisis, the second half of the book is dedicated to workable solutions and ideas to create more escape artists, a term that they use to describe people who, against all odds, find an off-ramp while on the road to poverty and despair. It sounds like a great book, and we, we talk about these issues a lot, especially given that we live in Maine, uh, there are a lot of um, contractors, independent contractors, sole proprietors, uh, handymen, um, electricians, plumbers. And when the stars are perfectly aligned, those kinds of jobs, you can support your family, send your kids to college and all is well. And you might get by without health insurance until there's an injury. You know, a handyman falls off the ladder. Um, and then you have a back problem and perhaps you're introduced to Oxycontin and then you can't work and um, your medical bills pile up. And Oxycontin mixed with despair is a downward spiral and that's when people start to fail. And um, this book just, you know, it addresses an issue that is relevant for so many people in this country, especially rural America. Thank you. And that addresses the whole balancing act of being on a tightrope. Um, independent contractors, self-employed people, although they may be making good money, it only takes one misstep, one accident mm -hmm. that sets them on another path. It could derail them. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, the, the upper class has more safety nets. They have a savings account. They have a 401k. They may even have a dual income household. Um, the middle class and the working class are just inherently met with a lot more risk. Mm -hmm. And so this tightrope of, if I fall, what is that safety net? Yeah. Well, it sounds like a, a great, great book. It is. If you are, to our listeners, if you are concerned about the future of America and the shrinking middle class, then I would say you've got to read this. The book, again, is Tightrope by Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. <music> 
So Renee, what is your nonfiction book? Yeah, so I want to talk about uh, A Good Provider is One Who Leaves by Jason DeParle. It was published in 2019 by Viking. The author, Jason DeParle, is a reporter with the New York Times and is a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Reporting. He's written one other nonfiction book entitled American Dream, a book about welfare in the United States. So 30 years ago, Jason DeParle was a young reporter who traveled to the Philippines. Specifically, he went into the heart of the slums and shantytowns of Manila. His intent was to learn about and report on the conditions of the people who live there. The shacks in these slums were typically one-room wood structures with no toilets or running water. Entire families often lived in them, with most sleeping on mats on the floor. When he arrived in Manila, DeParle went around asking if someone might be willing to take him in as a boarder with the intent of experiencing firsthand what it was like to live in these conditions. He was introduced to a nun who found a family willing to take him in exchange for rent. And so began Jason DeParle's 30-year relationship with the Commodus family, which included Tita and Emmett Commodus and their five children. A good provider is one who leaves, follows a family over the course of 30 years, while also reporting on the labor migration industry of the Philippines. The Philippines is a country that's an archipelago, a group of islands. To be more specific, it has over 7,600 islands. It is a country that was ruled by Spain for 300 years and then ruled by the United States after the Spanish-American War in 1898. The Philippines was invaded and occupied by Japan for three years during World War II and was then taken over again by the United States. On July 4, 1946, the United States finally relinquished control of the Philippines and the country became an independent nation. Since its independence, the Philippines has been plagued with corrupt leaders and dictatorial regimes. And under the umbrella of all of these rulers and all of these transitions, the people of the Philippines simply strive to do what all families strive to do, lead safe, stable lives, and provide for their families. In 1974, with both an exploding population and a shortage of resources, the Philippines government came up with an idea, and that was to export labor. The government decided to pay to train people of the Philippines in a trade and send them abroad to work in construction, nursing, and a variety of trades. The United Arab Emirates, on the other hand, struck oil in the 1960s. Their sudden wealth caused a massive construction boom. Desperate for construction workers, they turned to the Philippines for workers. Saudi Arabia and Dubai also saw a massive growth in construction related to oil, and so began a mutually beneficial relationship between the Philippines and Arab countries. In 1975, the first group of Filipinos to work abroad consisted of 36,000 people. Today, 2 million Filipinos a year leave the Philippines to work abroad, and they work all over the world. The money they send home to family is referred to as remittances. Currently, one out of seven people in the Philippines works abroad. The $32 billion in remittances that Filipino workers abroad send home each year accounts for 10% of the gross domestic product of the Philippines. Over the course of 30 years, Jason DeParle follows the lives of several family members as they go work abroad. They leave and don't come back to the Philippines for two and three years. They don't see their children for two and three years. While overseas, they send money home, providing financial stability for their parents, their children, their extended family, and hence the title, A Good Provider is One Who Leaves. It's purely coincidental that you and I both chose nonfiction books that deal with labor and the challenges that are created by lack of jobs at home. 
and although our books focus on different parts of the world, mm -hmm. it really illustrates just how central jobs are to the yeah. success of an, in not only an individual household, but to a community and even to the success of an entire country. I agree. That's a very good point. And there does seem to be a lot of commonality with both books. I think for me, what was so poignant about a good provider is one who leaves is that numerous members of the Komodos family, if they hadn't left their country, if they hadn't left their family to work abroad, they never would have elevated out of poverty. Um, for those listening, it's a very moving, very informative book, and I highly recommend it. Again, the title is, or the full title is, A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family in Migration in the 21st Century by Jason DeParl. His last name is spelled D-E capital P-A-R-L-E. You can buy any of the books we discussed today by clicking the link in the notes section of the podcast. You'll be routed to our bookshop page where most of the books are discounted and you can purchase hardcover, paperback, audiobook, or CD. As an affiliate of Bookshop LLC, we receive a portion of every sale, which helps us with the cost of producing this podcast. And most importantly, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a star rating, which will attract more listeners to our show. Thank you for listening to You've Got to Read This.